When I decided to open a second location, the Brentwood Country Mart was the only place on earth I wanted to be. I'm Laura Vinrootpool from Capital, and this is what we wore, the Brentwood Country Mart edition. Pippa Small is a captivating jewelry designer, and more importantly, a woman fiercely dedicated to empowering communities around the world, from Afghanistan to Rwanda to Colombia. I loved hearing the jingling of Pippa's layers of beautiful jewelry throughout our conversation and learning about the one piece she's never taken off. I can't remember where I first met you. And I, I'm, I was thinking, I know I met you in your store in London. I went specifically just to introduce myself to you. And I don't know if it's because of, would, would it have been Irene or I guess maybe Maria that said you have to go in the store? Might have been I Maria. Think, I think it was Maria. And Maria is the <laughs> Maria, best taste, champion. doesn't she? She's she has, the best. Yeah. It's, it's like that shot Mookie Mood of hers is yes. you sort of feel like she's seen everything in the world and she's yes. chosen the best and it's there curated in this way of you know, the ultimate pair of jeans and the best soap in the way. It's kind of that feeling in her shop. So yeah, I'm hugely complimented. I am too. Well, and yeah, exactly. And it's the only place really, at, I mean, I, when I go to London, I shop there. Other than the pedicure. And pedicure. <laughs> and then, yes. And also perfumer age. I don't know where you're from. Oh. <laughs> where, where um, are you from originally? I think you're well, from different places. Yes, I was born in Montreal. <laughs> ah, really? Um, yeah, and spent, I suppose, until I was five uh -huh. in kind of northern Quebec and Montreal. Mm -hmm. And then my mother got pneumonia and decided she needed to go to a dry, hot place. And she we should moved have had to... Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, <laughs> she decided kidding. the south of Spain, where my aunt and family were living. So we moved there. Okay. And then... Five until when? seven okay. and then we moved to England and it was partly because my father was from Scotland originally mm -hmm. he was born in South America but his family was from Edinburgh he he was born in 1901 I have to say so I have a father who's oh, wow. kind of he was older yeah, yeah. <laughs> considerably older I think my grandfather was born in 1901 wow yeah. it's, it's such That's an interesting amazing. I mean just to segue off into the weirdness of older parents but it is interesting to have a father who his brothers died in the first world war yeah and it connects you in the strangest way sort of a sense of history is very personal. You know, to me, this idea of, you know, the my uncles who were in, well, the, the uncles that were in the Second World War, that, you know, yeah. it just feels yeah. so much closer, this kind of, the sense of history that's huh. through the family in this strange, distorted way that having older parents kind of gives you a... Anyway, that's um, well. Wait, so were your so was your dad with you in in Canada and in Spain? Yes. So he was with us he, when we moved to England. So his yeah. thought was to move back to Scotland because mm. Quebec at the time was going through the sort of separatist thing, and he thought I'll go back to Scotland, but maybe not Scotland because it's too wet, and I'll go to Wiltshire. <laughs> so we ended up in Wiltshire of all places in the kind of I don't know what would that be mid seventies or something. They bought this kind of beautiful house in the middle of the country and we had stables and like acres of garden and fields uh, and it was magical. Oh my gosh, magical. He promptly passed away unfortunately uh, but my mother decided. How old were you? Eight. Uh, oh. uh, yeah, eight I think. Wow. And my mother decided to stay so she kind of um, had this, England at that time actually I have to say was quite in that rural area. It was quite unsophisticated. It, you know, there wasn't olive oil, there wasn't right. espresso coffee. It was very... <laughs> kind of cut off it was a strange it was very farm horsey yeah. there was the hunt that was the primary occupation of most people fox hunting 
and she didn't really fit in as a kind of newly widowed and foreign and yeah. with three young children and three other children and she kind of that was what I was going to ask is um your dad was so much older did he have another family before? yeah they both did and actually. so oh really your mm, mom too mm. so were you close to them yeah, I was the youngest, and the eldest would be old enough to be my father. Wow! So, <laughs> wow! Oh, all those amazing. Kind of generational mix-up again. So yes, she's decided to stay in this, you know, very foreign and rather exotic place in a way for her. But I don't think it was easy, and it took her a while to find like-minded mm. people. And she kind of met this bohemian set of sculptors and painters and landscape designers, and she slowly made this kind of world for herself. Was she an artist? She she painted, yeah. Bef even when yeah. you were little and all, yeah. always. Huh. Yeah. In a way, it was an idyllic childhood because... I had ponies, chickens, <laughs> ducks, horses, cats, obviously chinchillas, parrots, you know, cute <laughs> oh houses God, full of animals, this. donkeys, you know, just kind of, yeah, I mean, really idyllic, you know, it was, it was free to roam. There weren't many young people around, uh, so it was, you know, quite, you had to be quite uh, resourceful and find your own things to do in, in this kind of beautiful I don't know, a little haven in the middle of the country. So I think it was heaven. My sisters and brothers, when they became teenagers, got a little uh, <laughs> frustrated, <laughs> wanted to be in the city. And um, But for me, it was perfect. It was wow. just heaven. What was your mom's style like? You have such a beautiful style. style. She was born in New York, mm -hmm. also from kind of Scottish-Irish family. Uh -huh. But her mother in the 90, probably late, 1920s took her and her sister to Reno, Nevada to get a divorce from her husband <laughs> <laughs> who had disappeared. So she kind of came to get that kind of divorce thing and met a young cowboy, a man who was 13 years younger than her and ended up marrying him. So my mother's stepfather was this young man from Reno and they ended up living there for a while wow. in Nevada. So in the yeah 20s and 30s. So again, oh, how interesting. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, and she had great style. I mean, I, oh, going her back marriage to her style, style I, I'm yeah. getting. <laughs> well, then that, that was my grandmother. Then my mother oh, yeah. um, married and I think after the war she married and, and moved to Canada. Okay. But her style, I would say, was the reason I mentioned Nevada is because I'd say her style was quite cowboy. Really? <laughs> she wore jeans all the time and these kind really? of um, jodhpur boots and... Yeah, I wear jeans every day now and I wear boots also. So I think I might somehow be emulating her style. But but she didn't really wear much jewelry. That's what I think. Well was that's cool. what I was gonna ask. Did you what's your first jewelry memory? Uh probably my aunt, her sister, mm -hmm. who was in Spain. Yeah, the one who lived in Spain, yeah. but she actually lived everywhere from Iran to Colombia to Naples to she just spent her life having these kind of I don't know, a fancy of wouldn't it be interesting to live on a lake in Switzerland? And she'd take all her children and <laughs> off they'd go to Switzerland. And then it would be kind of something interesting. And she would go to San Francisco and then she would move to, I don't know, she lived everywhere. But she oh. was that classic aunt with a turban. No. With big turquoise rings from Tehran, from, you know, she just kind of was exactly that sort of um, Graham Greene wow. aunt character. Wow, oh, I who, love. And do, you, and do you remember loving the jewelry? I mean, did I it know, connect I loved for you the jewelry. then? Yeah, yeah. I was always She fascinated. let you try it on. Yes. And, <laughs> As a child, I was always wow. yeah, running around with her. And what was it like, I mean, moving around from country to country, not not even city to city, just country to country. Yeah. I mean, that must have been hard to move schools. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and But also, I think, interesting to have the, the step-siblings or half-siblings on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Partly because it was such a big family and 
you know, all big families have their troubles, obviously. <laughs> Tall <laughs> yes, story <we> do. way. <laughs> um, that I think being the youngest of all these siblings and quite strong character siblings, that I was um, naturally really shy and really quiet and that's why actually growing up in the country with all these animals was perfect yeah. for me because I'd kind of sit in the chicken house and you know commune with my hen friends and then I'd be <laughs> off with my pony and walking with the dog and kind of avoiding all the dramas of <laughs> many many uh, people um, having all their growing up issues and <laughs> do you remember your first piece of jewelry or the first piece oh, that was important to you I remember a piece that was given to me by my godfather mm. and it was a beautiful gold bracelet and I had a favorite hen, a chicken, uh -huh. and I gave it to her to wear. As a necklace? <laughs> As a necklace. And did it, but did, it, did it, she it, like it? Did it, it she fit? did like it for a bit and then it disappeared. <laughs> oh my God. What was her name? <laughs> oh God, she was called Henrietta, obviously. Henrietta. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there went the gold bracelet. I think everyone thought at that point, don't give her jewelry. In the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't give it. And are you Philippa? I am. Philippa, you are yeah. Yeah. Um, And so then from Scotland, you went to university. Then I went to university. Yeah, I went to London University, Goldsmiths first to do anthropology and then um, School of Oriental and African Studies. So as uh, to do a master's in medical anthropology. And tell me what medical anthropology <laughs> Completely is. Completely related to I know, design. I, I, um, I, I have, my sister is an anthropology major and my brother is a doctor, but I can't, they don't. put them together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't really know how it works. Yeah, tell me. Um, well, it was interesting because, I mean, the reason I did anthropology actually was because I was very lucky that my mother, this cowgirl mother <laughs> with many children, I think when she was widowed for the second time, she just thought it's time for me to do the things I want to do. And so she wanted to travel. And it was an amazing experience to ta be taken from a really young age to places like, I don't know, in, to Turkey, to India, to Tunisia. She'd hear about this camel festival in the desert in Tunisia and we'd go. And of, just you or did she take everybody? The three of us, the yeah. three younger ones. Okay. Yeah, so my two siblings and... Um, and that I found absolutely transformative. I mean, I do find now when I, I have these lovely nine-year-old twins that people are always telling me, why are you taking them to, I don't know, South America or to India from four months onwards? I've yeah. been traveling with them. Yeah. And they kind of say they won't remember. Oh my God, my mom home. says that all the time. I'll and I'm like, what? <laughs> I know. It's like, I, I mean, it's what created you <laughs> and, and yeah, I think exactly. you know I do believe that at some cellular level you absorb that you may not consciously remember but these things are all I think it's really important for them to understand that the world is very large and very complicated and people live in very different ways and that's important to see that and know that and, and, not and you are of, not that important <laughs> right I mean kind exactly. of I think a little bit totally. of it really yeah and also just the the ability to fit in anywhere and to figure yeah. it out and to yeah. not say I'm sorry, they don't have chicken fingers here. I can't eat here. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think yeah. You probably were not that sort of a child. No, I think it's one of the, the biggest gift you, yeah. gifts you could ever give your children. I think I think it is and probably more and more important, you know, as we yeah. become, you know, in some senses, we become more secluded into our bubbles, you know, remaining with like-minded people. And in other ways, the world is getting smaller. But unless we go and experience and feel and talk to people and, and have a sense of other lives, it's, it's going to be dangerous, I think. Yeah. And so the way you all traveled, I mean, sounds like your mom wanted to do really cool things when yeah. she got to these places yes. too so you really did I'm sure meet people absolutely I mean she was luckily quite adventurous so I just remember sort of early things like you know going to um a farmer's 
it's a farmer's market. You know, all these people would come down from the hills and they'd have their produce. And I just remember it'd always be kind of, she'd look around and I'd be wandering off with a family, like saying, I'm going to go back <laughs> to their village with them and see. And they'd have me bundling up in the truck to go with them or with the Maasai in Tanzania. I had family who lived in Tanzania and we'd kind of go a few times and just, you know, fascinated to know what, going back to the village and going into the houses and I mean being a female child is quite useful because yeah. the women feel fine to bring you in the yes, house yes. and and it I just was kind of I don't know I just felt and always have felt completely fascinated and curious how do other people live what yes. is their what do they believe in what what motivates them what's what does this mean to them and what does the earth mean to them what does food mean to them what does family mean to them well and i also want of, to see how they how they literally live like yeah. what does their bed look like yeah. what does their kitchen yeah. look like i don't yeah. I've, I've, I, I love a train i yeah. take a train as often as i can and I, that's my favorite thing is to start to try to look into people's <laughs> you know houses yeah. on the train room because yeah. you just are like it's just so yes, fascinating that's such a strange thing isn't it going by <laughs> you see the so... illuminated rooms but and, i love it <laughs> yeah to make up the stories of yeah yes i think and, that's it too the stories yeah. and trying to understand yeah that's so interesting and so how did you connect that that was i mean as a young person did you know that was anthropology basically no no idea <laughs> yeah so you just you started and it, and you took a few classes and they were like well you should be an anthropology major well no I I think a friend of my sister's told me about it I, I'd never heard of anthropology and once I started looking into it I was like that's absolutely what I want to do and by then I was already interested in human rights so I was kind of already mm -hmm. starting to I think all that travel did help me to understand that there were you know people who were being rather unjustly treated and there was sort of situations going on that weren't right and so I'd already had the sense of that from childhood but I think then as I grew older I became more interested in, and you know discovered more acutely how things were and and university was just from going to many schools nine yeah. schools actually which I was never very fond of. <laughs> I got to university and loved it. I remember yeah. just feeling this kind of excitement, you know, after a lecture that just, you know, that sense of someone explaining why the world is the way yeah. it is. And you're just like, finally, all these things are, you know, it's like opening up your mind and having it stirred and yeah. thrown about. And then you're just like, I understand that. Why, why some countries are poor and some are rich? Why are some people, you know, it just all began to, to make sense. And I was amazingly i just remember coming home and you know gathering friends and saying now let me tell you everything i learned today. <laughs> really? oh my God, <laughs> I, love that. I just loved it tell me about the medical anthropology part uh, what the, is that then medical well i mean medical anthropology i took i was sort of torn between going into anthropology of the arts which could lead to curating collecting museum work you know i thought that would be very interesting or medical anthropology and it was in part because you know the sort of like all big families you know there's some mental health issues in the family sure. and I was very interested pathology in, yes yeah, <laughs> a little some, madness I have some myself <laughs> uh, and I was interested in how mental health was seen in other cultures so uh. medical anthropology is, is simply medical systems healing system doctor patient patient relations ways of seeing the body ways of understanding health disease in other cultures how or in you know other cultures within our culture or you know in migrant communities or how how other people see death and and birth and huh. so it was a kind of it, the, actually what was interesting was as a as a master's there were a lot of um mature students yes. <laughs> um, who were doctors or nurses from WHO or who had worked in you know different conflict areas and they had really interesting experiences to bring in actually back to you know students who hadn't done anything and like me so huh. it was really interesting and they found it very useful to take away with them you know what are normal and abnormal forms of behavior in another culture context or huh. does psychoanalysis work in India you know with a different kind of family structure or that kind of thing oh how fascinating 
Nothing to do with jewelry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, well, were you making jewelry at this time at all? Was had I you... making jewelry? I think I did start. Um, yes, I had started at that point making, you know, I mean, drilling my first drills, everything I could find and put a hole in, you know, seashells. Yes, and yeah. I got a diamond drill so I could do stones. So mm -hmm. every, every bowl I still have has little holes in it from, I put water <laughs> in and then drill through to keep the diamond from overheating. And that was not your goal no no no, <laughs> no, no. Really not. And so next so from university you you went to I think you went to Borneo yeah, for the first time and yeah. tell me about that I went because I had some through different NGOs I was um involved with in London I'd heard about there was a particular issue in Sarawak at the time of a very large dam that was being planned called the Bakun Dam and it would involve flooding a massive area and they were keen to know what people um, in those communities felt about the dam were they happy to move was it something they were going to be kind of financially compensated for or was it something they were desperately against or they wanted a sense of that so that gave me I was doing a thesis but it also gave me a kind of another reason to go and I think that was one of the I can't know I'd been traveling a lot on my own before that but that was quite a life-changing trip because I was spending time in kind of deep rainforest which mm -hmm. was amazing I was spending time with uh, nomadic hunter-gatherers which mm -hmm. was utterly them I'm still the most ex incredible experience I've ever had mm -hmm. that period with them and just getting to understand I mean, the struggles of small communities against massive yeah. development projects of, you know, logging and oil oh. palm plantations, but also things about indigenous you know, medical systems, what plants, traditional plants they would use for healing, how to preserve those plants, language, how to keep their traditional languages alive for mm. the grandparents to teach the young and despite pressure of kind of national governments to lose those languages. There was there were many things going on that I found really fascinating, hmm. mostly done by women, indigenous women, kind right. of <laughs> bravely. And that was sort of, yes, that was a life-changing moment because I felt like this was a movement that was to do with environment, to do with human rights, to do with women, to do with um, nature, to do with kind of everything that's important. And it was all in, in one kind of yeah. fight, really. And so that was quite a moment where I just suddenly felt like this is it. This is what's worth, you know, fighting and living for. This is something wow. huge. And how long were you there? Uh, on and off for quite a few years. Like, I don't know, maybe two, three years. I'd go back and forth and do things. So I'd, I'd spend sort of a few months and then and then I ended up going from there to work with another group in Thailand. And then and then Botswana. And then Botswana. Botswana yeah. came later. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, well, it's not a shallow question because it's actually your job but <laughs> but when did you start noticing jewelry was that sort yeah. of always a part of it well jewelry was always a part I mean the reason I started with my drill was because I had I think as many children do this fascination with stones like yes I don't know just always picking up I mean I think most people pick up stones everywhere they go but they just stones were I don't know maybe because the chaos of family life that stones felt very solid and still and dependable and and kind of I don't know ancient and quiet and wise yeah. and so, wise know, for wise, sure yes. something about them yeah. I mean, hard to say but it was the touch of them and I'd always have them in my pockets and really? I'd always be losing <laughs> them I'd put them in bed in the bath I was just stones everywhere so and the drilling was so I didn't lose them <laughs> oh my God, it was that. literally so I could carry them around on a chain or as I still do on cords and not lose them so that was kind of the beginning of making jewelry was to have my pebbles and Botswana was the first trip I did um, which was very definitely going to be about craft and making things so it was gosh it must be like 23 years ago or something or maybe more and I knew I was going to go 
to make um, jewelry and embroidery and leatherwork. And it was just at this time where I had this sort of thought that maybe in making jewelry and in having living, lived with different communities, it was a way of combining. Because wherever I go, even Sarawak and Borneo, where people would come and say, well, you, do you think you can get our baskets, sell our baskets? Can you sell these bracelets? You know, they would always be trying to make things, which yeah. they did beautifully yeah. and could do, but they didn't have a market. And then I'd also, I'd take all the baskets and try and sell them. Right, right. <laughs> and it would be kind of, well, maybe if they're bigger or if the color was different or if, if the beads were different color. And so I just yeah. thought they have the skills and the resources and they need the work and they need the money and they need the pride of making beautiful things. And I just kind of, it dawned on me that if they made particularly in Botswana, if they perhaps spent more time and made something really with kind of intent for it to be a beautiful, important thing and not a kind of cheap, rapidly made, breakable thing, but something that's going to be in the world for a long time, then that would kind of change. They could charge more money for it and it could become something that to be proud of rather than something made very quickly for a sort of tourist market. Right, But they just didn't have the ability or the understanding of how to get it to the place where you could sell it for that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And local tourist markets are, 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 are a little sort of less interested in the, con- you know, it's yeah. just about a souvenir oh, yeah. and it's kind of pick up last minute. And, yeah. Yeah. So it was just really trying to shift it. Let's make something if we're going to spend time and use energy and use materials from the world, let's make them beautiful and last and, and be important and precious. So that was the first trip I started to do that with the community of women. And, and, um, was, and what was it like? Was it challenging? I did it one summer and I found it very challenging because um, HIV AIDS was um, unfortunately huge in the community. So there were frequent funerals and poverty was an issue. And it was very interesting because that first trip I spent, I don't know, maybe six weeks and I found it quite difficult. And then I went back a year later to do it again over the same period Mm -hmm. in the summer. And it was completely the opposite. It was as if I think they also felt a bit like, okay, you've come back. You know, I think the coming back was really important because A, it it made me understand actually, you know, not seeing, just seeing the other side, which was this incredible community of extraordinary people who survive in this amazing desert you know through just ingenuity and brilliance and the struggles they have now with the loss of you know land and hunting rights and so forth but to see what they made and to see what joy and you know laughter and just constant laughter I mean we'd sort of all the women we'd sit outside we'd be making things and endless laughter you know someone would say something big roars that someone would start dancing someone would start singing it was just kind of seeing the complete reverse of that first time that I found yeah I was seeing the kind of the darker side and this time it was just the joy and that huh. kind of created um I don't know a love of being in places when you have purpose yeah and not just traveling through but sort of stopping and staying still and and putting down even the temp- most temporary roots it's sort of but having that relationship with people that's based on a an an exchange or a, a create especially creating you have that language in common and I yeah, just, but does every culture create adornment or yeah do they does every yes, culture do that everywhere yeah, yeah clothing and jewelry yeah. and and makeup i guess yeah hair yeah all the things <laughs> for me it's um it's food also it is embroidery yeah. but it's also yeah. food that i'm i'm amazed yeah. how similar it is across the world yeah you know that yeah. it's it, it's maybe you know maybe people these people have maize and these people have rice yeah. but really the, the the dish is pretty much the same totally <laughs> yeah i mean those are all kind of human creations i mean all of it i went to last summer i went to lascal in france to see the caves of yeah. the prehistoric caves and to see 
what I found beautiful was, I mean, 27 to 30,000 years ago, that the, the two things that humans made at that point were the needle for sewing. Right. So skins would be stitched and jewelry. And that, that was it. You know, yeah. no pottery, no, obviously no metalwork, but horn, bone, stone, whatever it was, those were the, and the needle were the That's two so most incredible. important things for thousands of years, not for kind of the short yeah. period. That was, right. that was it. Jewelry for obviously so important, so intrinsic to us as humans. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think it's, it's, the connection today it's in quite an animistic thing is this connection to nature to whether it's to animal or to plant or to rock i think it just brings those natural forces or energies that we just kind of are in tune with that you know we use as protection yeah really, yeah to enhance to make us brave beautiful yeah <laughs> it's the same as we do now i guess so when did jewelry become full-time or when did you feel like you could do that how did it even cross your mind (laughs) actually (laughs) it was just it was I really since I was young I wanted to write I thought I would be a writer and then I thought when I started going to Borneo and things I thought to make documentaries because I thought this is such a to me it was such a fascinating story and I thought I you know this needs to be told people need to see what yeah you know these people are doing and how they're fighting and you know incredible things but um I did neither of those (laughs) (laughs) and the making of jewelry which as I said, I did from from kind of childhood. When that kind of, I, I don't really remember, but I know that I would make things for myself and it would be one of those, you know, well, would you make me a bracelet like yours? And right. then another present, then a shop would ask for it. And it just slowly began kind of seeping in and I'd sort of make a few things and sell them or give them to a shop. And then I'd think, okay, now I'm, you know, I'm off again to right. Africa or Asia and just kept reappearing. And I think sometimes in life there is perhaps a destiny and, you know, you <laughs> kind of fight it by going off to the left and the right, but actually, you, you know, you're brought back to that path again. And certainly in my case, I'd literally be off around the world and then I'd come back and the jewelry was still there. And I think it was just in traveling and seeing all these other peoples and yeah. wearing jewelry and, and using different materials and having different beliefs around that jewelry that I'd sort of, I guess I just thought, well, yes, I have those same beliefs actually. And I love making, love wearing, love appreciating. So I don't know, just, it just, that, that kind of, you know, the shop or two, which grew and there was, it just seemed to you know the demand was there and I just would start it's also about you I think the way you wear jewelry is so unusual and so attractive and (laughs) you know (laughs) truly like attracting like I'm sure people I know people stop you all over the world don't they yeah and did they then you had already been making I was already dressing yeah I was already wearing a lot of jewelry (laughs) yeah I I I think that that probably was part of it too probably something you probably couldn't walk down the street without people saying oh my god where did you get that who made that (laughs) yeah so what what did your mom think I remember she was quite, not disappointed, but it was a bit like, so you're going to just after, you know, it's education and all this experience <laughs> traveling, you're going to just make jewelry. It was just a little bit of a kind of, yeah, there was definitely a sense of, that's it? <laughs> this is it? <laughs> what about, <laughs> she thought I should work in conservation and work, you know, it was like, oh. <laughs> but I think when I kind of moved it, to working more with communities then for her it was like okay all right when did you figure out that it could be about empowering communities in india i met um a woman called uh kathy park who worked with christina kim from Mm, dosa and we met in jaipur and (laughs) i think what christina kim was doing with dosa was so inspirational so interesting and so exciting and And so beautiful and so beautiful and what she was doing with 
fashion and textiles was the same as what I try and do with jewelry it's just you know it's taking this incredible knowledge and and you know explaining to people I remember when she was doing her wholesale and things and and her explaining to clients or her team about you know the history of this dye or this technique of pleating or whatever it was and it was so fascinating and I think that that kind of seeing that there could be an appreciation that well that there could be storytelling around it really exactly (laughs) and that sort of difficult area between you know those scary words like cultural appropriation which you know feel I think can be quite intimidating make you feel a bit powerless but when you say you know I truly believe that you know working in Afghanistan with Afghan artisans I think it's really important to me that they the work we're making is drawn from their culture from their traditions from yeah exactly I think it would be kind of more disrespectful to come and say I want you to make this. Um, Here's how the English know. like it. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is what's in trend at the moment, you know, this <laughs> oh season, God, what today. what a nightmare. Can you imagine how? <laughs> you know, ear clips and that's it. And oh I mean, it's, it's sort of, it seems to me you should have the respect to the artisan to make it about their, their, their language. Gifts. Yeah. yeah. The materials yeah. they use and their techniques. And their history. And, and yeah. their history, yeah. How do you make it so it's about partnering with the communities rather than charity? Well, I think the first few ones were kind of charity. <laughs> and then I did, it was a sense of, you know, if we want this to be sustainable, um, and I use that word very carefully because I don't, I get um, a little nervous when people use it about um, jewelry in yeah. terms of materials, right. which I mean, are obviously not sustainable, right, right. <laughs> clearly. But I think jobs are sustainable in the sense if you can employ someone for decades this is a really important thing in generations in the long run I wanted this to kind of last and now in Afghanistan we've worked together for um since 2008 and I'm really proud that some of the the people in the workshop were really young when they started and now they have children and it's kind of that job is is such an important you know I think emphasizing how vital livelihoods are in places where there's such vulnerability through conflict through poverty through you know violence whatever it happens to be jobs are everything and creative yes. jobs are even more important because it means people leave the workshop feeling I've achieved something today I've made something beautiful it's going out into the world I may not be able to but this thing is going out into the world and it's kind of yes. to me it's a bit their voice and their hand is coming That's out so and telling their story and I think it's I mean, a lot of the time I find myself in workshops, you know, we discuss designs, we discuss stones, we discuss materials, we discuss the kind of inspiration behind the design. But most of the time I find myself just listening, mm-hmm. you know, the stories that everyone, you know, especially when you're an outsider and it's, and it's in a place where it's not as accessible, it's quite cut off and you kind of end up listening. Everyone wants to tell you what their experience has been, whether it's been... Wow. You know, there's been a bomb and they, you know, about this morning when they couldn't get to their child and they knew that area being closed off and their child was at school and or what it's like when, you know, you're going to work and suddenly the city's extra quiet and, you know, that's a sign something's going to happen and mm. you jump off the bus and you, um, you know, kind of try and get somewhere. So it, it just kind of they all wanted to explain what their life is like, what the reality is like, just to kind of share. And I think it's, you know, that role of of listening is yeah. really important just to understand what what their daily reality is and whether that's Afghanistan or or Myanmar or in Jordan where you know we work with young women who are refugees from Syria uh-huh. particularly and, and Palestine and things is just to to listen and and be that kind of you know vessel for their stories and I feel those stories go into the 
I mean, my belief is they go into the jewelry. I think, yes. you know, when you're making something in an area where you're selling it in Notting Hill in London or in <laughs> Redwood Country Mart and, you know, people who've never been to that place or yeah. don't really know about those people or I think they feel it in the jewelry. I honestly believe they feel within that piece some sense of the, the soul of the person who made it and their right. story. It's kind of, it's held in these materials that they've touched and, you know, they're kind of... Um, I don't know. I believe it. It's They're just a part from, of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. Talk to me a little bit about Afghanistan, about Turquoise Mountain. Turquoise Mountain, yeah. yeah. Well, Turquoise Mountain is an incredible charity that was started by Prince Charles in 2006. Okay. And he partnered with um, Hamid Karzai, who was then mm -hmm. the president of Afghanistan, and Rory Stewart, who's a, a just incredibly interesting young man who was in Afghanistan at the time. And the idea is, is based on, I think, a lot of um, Prince Charles's ideas about uh, tradition and heritage having a really intrinsic and important part of our lives as, you know, all our sense of identity and, you know, with the world where we all move around so much and there's such kind of mixing and melding, but a sense of self comes through in part through the material world around you, whether that's the architecture or the food or or the craft, the jewelry, the, the ceramics, the woodwork, whatever it is, especially in these quite traditional communities. This is really important part of our kind of our DNA or our, our sort of sense of self. And I think especially in areas where there's been so much upheaval in Afghanistan and sort of decades and decades of war, people lose that sense of self. And that's a very, very dangerous thing, I think. You know, our, our cultural self is really important and i think he he could see that in a, in a country like afghanistan that has such you know deeply spiritual um such incredible humbling culture and sense of hospitality and sense of the way they are with each other that this war had destroyed so much mm -hmm. and to rebuild old parts of the city and to put in this incredible carved hand carved jolly work you know the wooden work and the, the lime wash walls and to create a, a school that was uh, that is still so beautiful that these young people who'd been had grown up with such violence around them they come in the school and there's just a sense of peace and such a sense of sort of respect when you're in the school because it's so beautiful and all the details are all obviously kind of natural, you know, woods and natural materials. I just, I see these young people in there just behaving differently mm. towards each other, towards the materials they wear with such respect. So boys and girls? Boys and girls. Now, um, I think it was basically his idea that craft was very important. And and obviously in a, in a completely pragmatic way, it's also an income generator. Yeah. As, as in most parts of the world, craft is a huge source of support for carpet making or whatever it happens to be it's it's an income and it's really it's an important one and it's a beautiful one so I think he saw that and and that's where it started have you always done all these trips by yourself yeah do you ever <laughs> are you ever afraid and, well Afghanistan yes I used to get quite scared before going I'd have these sort of really? slight kind of and then certainly after I had the twins I'd have a little anxiety but the moment I'd land and the moment I'd get in the workshop it would be just this yeah. amazing yeah. sort of sense of they're so welcoming and so thrilled someone had come you know made that effort to come and yeah. we'd just you know we'd be talking 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 and about everything <laughs> under the sun and, and making the days would pass and I mean we had a few incidences in the workshop there was once um an attack outside the workshop but it was for a minute a little unclear whether it was machine gun or what exactly was happening and I do remember looking around the workshop and thinking you know there's only one entrance and one exit 
there's nowhere to hide because right. <laughs> kidnapping was obviously a bit of an issue. Right, so right, it right. kind of like, and I remember the, the women I was with, the Afghan women, you know, holding my hand saying, it's okay, we'll protect you if anything happens. And you'd oh be, God. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, as it was, it was, it, we were fine. But there were, yeah, there were certainly moments when there would be attacks in the city and you'd be a little panicked. But overall, they're, they're I don't know, they're welcome there. And they would, they would protect you, you know, yeah. no matter what. They're just yeah. kind of, I mean, they're still now, so many years later, they're, the relationship, the friendship there is, is so important to yeah. me, above and beyond. So you mentioned your children. When did you know that it was the right time to have a baby? <gasps> <laughs> I wish it had worked that way. But it was, I always wanted children. And I think in part, it really came from, from this traveling around the world and being in places i mean the kalahari the yeah. himalayas you know being in these places of natural beauty and power that i just felt and meeting these communities and things i felt this is so important this is such a huge thing about who we are as people and i really had this sense i wanted to share this i wanted to show someone from the next generation as it were that you know be part of the see this maybe having a sense that it's disappearing or maybe yeah. having a sense it's becoming rarer and but I just remember I was part of wanting to have children was about wanting to share the world, the beauty of the world, you know, this kind of magnificence. I mean, like your mother had shared with you all, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so tell me about the, the journey to having, to having twins. <laughs> it was simple. I decided and that was, it was not hard at all. Was yeah, it? exactly. I mean, years and years of um, longing and that kind of that thing that happens to women in their 20s and 30s when their friends start yes. you know, marrying and having children. And you're kind of I don't know. I think I just didn't really understand that that's what you were supposed to. I was in Borneo or where you know <laughs> pursuing other interests not really knowing you're supposed to like stay still and meet someone and start this so I was you're not supposed to do anything you're not supposed to exactly no. but I think it was that moment of looking around saying you've all done something and I I, I haven't done I'm not there I haven't uh -huh. married and had and kind of I had lovely relationships and lovely partners but somehow no, they just you didn't different, want the same things no, at the same time you didn't want the right. same things at the same time. <laughs> And kind of reaching my late 30s and having this sort of, you know, dawning moment that I knew I would find love. That was not my yeah. concern. That can happen, you know, 99 that can happen. It's, that's yeah. wonderful. But I knew ch having children was a slightly more um, time sensitive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in making that decision of, of having children on my own was quite um yes i mean i think it was a little mix of perhaps sadness that this isn't the way you see other people doing it but also just kind of thinking my life has somehow not been the way others is right have gone. <laughs> no, I would say and that. this is probably that's yeah this seems kind of right yeah <laughs> that's yeah. carrying on that way of um doing it a different way and i think from the moment the twins were born i have been um i, you know, I can't say i've been happy every minute but you know it's just it's brought so much gratitude number one that is something that I am so conscious of daily that they're in my life and and yeah absolute joy so it's kind of been a nearly 10 years of absolute wonder to have them <laughs> <laughs> and gratitude I think when you get that close to facing not having children yeah. potentially yeah and I was 43 when they were born I think 
so it was close and it was challenging yeah the process a challenging process and, and and you i mean also surprising process to have twins yes <laughs> <laughs> to want a baby and get two yes which couldn't have been more perfect i remember telling someone after the first scan and them going oh my god and i just was because i have twin sister and brothers my sister oh, has you twins uh-huh. i've been around twins all my life and i know what a joy that is yeah, it's such a joy it's two. I know my cousins are and twins. subsequently with all this travel and things they always have each other. So if we're in India, they've got each other. You know, it's always meant that there's someone who's always there who's yeah. your age, who understands <laughs> a partner in crime. And and how did having children change the way you went about your business or did it? Well, interestingly, I suppose because the way it happened, I I remember, I mean, I still to this day find it surprising when people tell you in this really kind of for boding way that you'd have no idea how your life is going to change in this way of almost it's so rude i know they say it's that so all the rude. time I yeah i don't understand it's as if it's warning you like you know what do you think you're getting into you have no idea and instead of being <laughs> oh you know that your life is about to change in the most wonderful way it yes it changed but i just feel like it got better it was enhanced yes. it became you know all my dreams were fulfilled everything i'd ever wanted was now mine yeah. and it was kind of it was better <laughs> and did it change in the sense of yes I found a you know a succession of lovely nannies who travel with us mm-hmm. when I'm working and yeah. you know the children are being cared for but I was very conscious I you know financially have to support myself the business yeah. has to support me and I have to work and and I also love it yeah. I love it it's so fulfilling so the fact that they maybe have to travel with me um, do they love it as you did they do I'm, I mean I'm sure there'll be a day where they'll say yeah. I want to stay with my friends and don't <laughs> want to go to wherever but at the moment they do mm. they get ex- incredibly excited and spend weeks packing before we have to go is your mom still no no, no. did she no. get to meet them no sadly oh. not I think no. she would be really proud of you yeah I think so <laughs> what's the next community that you hope to work with Gosh, I have a list. Are you there? Do you? And and because of the the place and the people, or because of the craft that you always a mixture, uh, both. I mean, like when I started with working with the Kuna Indians in Panama, it was because I was I was fascinated politically how they'd kind mm. of um, had such a sense of self determination from quite a long time and it was sort of politically why are they so incredibly strong and and then I found they made incredible jewelry so it mm. can be one way or another but. I'm really interested in, I uh, started a project in Colombia with um, Afro-Colombian communities working with gold panners and goldsmiths. And Tell me a little bit about that. I've, well, heard, just, I've heard some bits. It sounds really interesting. <laughs> it's it's kind of, it has a little bit of everything, this project, because it's it's clean gold. So in terms of extractives, it's there's no mercury, cyanide, and arsenic. There's no mechanization. There's no destruction on the environment because the, the gold is panned in these kind of big wooden bowls as they did three to 5,000 years ago, the, mm-hmm. you know, pre-Columbian societies. It's... It's working in the rivers. It's something the women do as usually a part of something. And so they're usually farmers or, and this is a kind of side initiative in a way, which I think what was interesting about the project is it's looking at gold in a community. So that the Afro-Colombian community who do the panning and the goldsmithing obviously were brought from West Africa mm-hmm. as slaves right. and worked in the gold mines. So already their, their whole kind of, you know, fate was linked to this material. And then, yeah of course when freedom and came and there they had collective rights to land to farm and they started to pan themselves and this gold has always been this kind of addition to their life it's something that when a child is born a, a gold nugget is placed in the belly button of the, really? child. the midwife is paid with gold and gold oh, has continued that. to have all these kind of 
parts in their the rituals of their lives and of course gold is is um you know has an intrinsic value and if you have gold it's a certain amount of security for everything but it's interesting how gold is also the gold jewelry they wear is also very much a part of their sense of identity and their sense of yeah. heritage and things especially the designs which come rooted a little bit in west africa a little bit in, from spain and it's kind of an interesting um and very distinctive uh jewelry that they design and it's, so it's kind of it's clean gold and it's working with artisans who've been learning and making jewelry for generations and generations mm. and it's really part of their culture so it's a kind of very interesting one to to work on and then create something that's drawn from tradition but with a contemporary feel so it, it fits into our world too mm. of all the places you've visited is there one that feels like your soul's home oh <laughs> that's so interesting because I, I i was sort of search for that one place yeah. but i then realized it's everywhere yeah everywhere takes you know i'm there and i i learn about the place i study when before i go i look at <laughs> you know go to every museum and try and sort of understand its history and and it's kind of each place i feel is that place mm. i don't know it's everywhere <laughs> i love that <laughs> and what do you hope for the future of the jewelry industry Oh, gosh. The area of ethical jewelry has been so interesting because I think it had a very slow and difficult start. There were moves around diamonds that I think were very easy for people to understand, a conflict diamond. I mean, ethical jewelry to me is about looking at the sourcing of the materials. So mining, basically. How are they mining? Where are they mining? Who's mining? And how much are they being paid for what they're right. mining? There are certain standards in place like fair trade and fair mind, which are certifications audited by outside bodies to ensure that there's no children working, that the mercury is contained, that you know, there's certain standards that we can look at and believe in. And I visited many mines, both in East Africa and South America, to see how that impacts the community around and yes. so forth. So that's kind of the extractive side. And then there's the making side, who is making where, mm -hmm. why, how much are they being paid and what are the conditions like that they're working right. in. I think there's... There's such a long way to go. And unfortunately, none of us are able to stand there and say we're fully ethical jewelers because, right. you know, every right. alloy element is is kind of, you know, there's not transparency. So many of the stones I work that I get in India, they come from Africa, but nobody knows where right. in Africa, which mine. or So it's kind of the places I know, like in Afghanistan, like in Myanmar, in Colombia, in, in Bolivia, certain projects I know. I've been to the mines where we get the gems and I've been to the gold mines and I'm happy to say I'm okay with the way those um, companies are working or families. Actually, a lot right. of the mines are family run. In India, there's, there isn't yet a certification for recycled gold. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the gems, it is a huge business and it's very difficult to know where. And, you know, so many of these, you know, rock crystal or labradorite, it's not a stone of enough value to warrant the kind right. of an investment to, to follow them. So there's so many gems we use that we don't know. And of course, rubies, emeralds, diamonds now have some traceability, but the others very little. So it's something that I look at as working, to me, it's important in the sense of working with communities where I know that a, the job is really important. B, that the materials we're using, we can trace and we know where they're from and we're okay with it. They're not sustainable, but I think, you know, if they've right. been, if the people working in the mines are being paid well, if it's safe and if we're comfortable with what's going on, okay. But 
I guess in in my situation, I, I think it's important to see a sense of continuation of traditional skills and pride and sense of design, which is part of a sort of tangible heritage, to see that that's kind of continued with the people who are making. And then to help tell their story outside it, I guess. Well, I think just... the telling of the story part is a really big part of it. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I, I don't know that, I think the client would care if they really had heard the story well yeah. and understood yeah. it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just don't think that's challenge. been done well at all. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is on that. I don't know. Because social media is there, but you have your 20 seconds. Yeah, exactly. um, your website's there, but who's <laughs> going to read all this? And it's, it is a yeah, difficult exactly. one. Yeah. I think little films are quite good because, you know, if yeah. you can visually explain where someone is and what the landscape's like and what the people are like and hear their language and see their hands, you know, that's yeah. a start. But it's tricky. It's challenging because they're big stories and they're, they're important to get right. And therefore speeding it up into 20 seconds feels. <laughs> well, you may get back to your documentary filmmaking. Yes. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you get to the Brentwood Country Mart? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I opened a shop in London in Notting Hill, um, maybe in 2006 or something. And in 2008, we decided to open in America. And uh. at first I was thinking New York, but then um, I met Jim. Yeah. And <laughs> In your store in London? Or we here? met through mutual friends in London. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember him explaining over dinner all about, and I just, I'd never been to LA and I just couldn't make any sense in <laughs> right, my mind exactly. what he was saying at all. But I thought, okay, I don't know where Santa Monica <laughs> is or or what that but anyway and then I met Marsha who who runs our shop and yeah. Marsha's been she worked with me in London and she was a huge influence because she lived in LA she yeah. had a shop in LA and she was going to come back so it made absolute sense and I remember when we were talking the other day about this because of of talking with you about how when she was looking around um, in 2008 for a, a, a space that she thought would be right and she liked the third street and she was you know she was looking at different places and she came to the mart to feel you know just hang around and feel what it, who's here what's mm. and she said she was wondering it was such a responsibility to be you know coming to check for someone else to open someone yeah, else's right. shop and she kept saying and I hope I, I get a sign while I'm here to see you know that this makes this is the right spot and she was sitting on one of the benches and she said she's sort of thinking like how do I know and how will I tell and and she looked up and she saw Julie Andrews and Julie Andrews <laughs> looked at her and said good morning dear and kind no, of walked off no. and she said oh it was like well. Mary Poppins said yes this is the <laughs> That, that is was the best it. story. Oh my god, I love that so much. That is so awesome. she hasn't seen her since, but <laughs> that moment she kind of endorsed it. Pippa, I know you were in Scotland at the time, and maybe it would have happened if you were in Canada. But we ask everybody on the podcast what they wore to the prom. So I don't think I don't think you had a prom. I'm not even Scotland. sure what a prom is. Is that when yeah, you finish it's a prom when you graduate or <laughs> it's your it's your last year of high school before university? Oh no. And you have a it's a formal. It's a formal. <laughs> do you have do you have a favorite formal dress? Do you have something that you, that you or do you have a favorite piece of jewelry? Okay, that would be Okay. Because okay. <laughs> I think I mean I was at an old girls' school. Did we have any sort of a no, there was not, not that I can recall. Nothing like that. Do you that. remember your favorite dress from that time? No. Did you have to wear a uniform? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so no, <laughs> no, so you had no dresses. Okay. <laughs> no, that was okay. fine. Um, favorite piece of jewelry. That's more difficult. Okay. Well, I mean, I have been wearing this shell that's on my arm. so beautiful. Since I was about 22 or 23. Really? And it's from Nagaland, which is an area, a tribal area between India and Burma. Okay. Up in the mountains. And I worked for a Naga human rights activist. He was sort of my mentor for years. I worked with him. He was a refugee in Thailand. Mm. 
on a kind of human rights project and he couldn't go home to India. But at one point I got permission to go to his area. You needed a, um, a special permit because there is sort of conflict as this, this particular community are trying to get independence from India. So there was a lot of army and uh, guerrilla movements going on. Anyway, I got permission to go and I went to meet his mother and his sisters and brothers who I'd, because I worked with them quite a long time. I used to hear endless stories about this village and everything from, you know, people's cows and the dog and his neighbors and the cousins. <laughs> I knew everything about it, but I finally got to go. And they're, they're just a very particular people, the Nagas. They were, they're famous for being in the past, they were headhunters. So yes. there was kind of a lot of warfare going on, and, but amazingly interesting and incredible community. Huh. rice farmers now and so I got there um he didn't get back at the time but it comes from that community and, and it's a conch it's a, a huge shell a huge that, conch and is, does it come off no you've had it on since you're 21 <laughs> 22 23 are you kidding yeah and it hasn't broken uh, no it's it's very thick and I took it off with great difficulty before I had the twins. Right. Because I was a bit concerned. I'd, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, then I just have absolutely, I mean, I genuinely have no memory, but I remember it was on a table and I'd be kind of back and forth, new babies, da, da, da. And then one day I woke up and it was back on and I must have in the night got up yeah. and like struggled oh. <laughs> and put it back on and, and with no memory because it's quite a thing. But it's so beautiful. It's obviously kind of, I mean, in some ways I see it as my shell, like when I feel shy, I can disappear in it. And sometimes people kind of meet me and they say, oh, yeah, the girl with the shell. Like they don't remember me at all, but they remember the shell. So it's kind of not a bit part of me. But and in other ways, it's I think of it as, yeah, it's protection. But it reminds me of of them and him. And yeah, um, he was such an influence in my life. So and sounds like he was so generous. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. Amazing Is it comfortable? Person. I guess it must I don't be. notice it. I don't, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, you know, you you can like you can't wear tight sleeved things. No, I was thinking that. I was actually thinking that about when you said that. Yeah, I was thinking you you must have to think about all of your shirts. Yeah, huh. <laughs> wow. There's things that you you know desperately want to wear, and you put them on, and they just won't go over the shell. So that's that's that. Do you sleep no. in your jewelry? Yeah, everything. <laughs> Do you I really? take out my earrings every night? Wow. <laughs> It's so beautiful. But even my rings now, I don't take off. I used to take rings on. No. So I leave it all on. It's too much trouble. Yeah. I like it. I like having them they in sound, the bath, They sound the so beautiful. <laughs> you sound like a little twinkling. <laughs> yeah, there are little bells and things on here. So it's a bit of a racket. Pippa, this has been such a treat. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. Thank Speaking you. of generous, you've been so generous with your time. And oh, thanks no. for spending your time with me. Oh, truly honored. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. Queen City Podcast Network.com.